The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. You are now about to take a journey with professional advisors Ken Smith and Ethan Broga on Empirical Investing Radio. To connect with Empirical Investing Radio, please call 1-866-472-5790. Fasten your seatbelts. You're going to need them. Just because the hosts have a sense of humor does not mean their advice won't change your life. All right, and welcome to the show, uh, Empirical Investing Radio. I'm your host today, Ethan Broga, alongside some co-workers of mine, uh, Eric Lear and both Lauren Enquist here. Um, the purpose of this show is to help you make smarter decisions with your money. And uh, we're going to talk about a few things today, which I think will hopefully pique your interest. Uh, before we get started, we're going to talk about a couple of things, uh, mostly introducing here the, uh, the returns here for the last week, from last week to this week. Every week, in fact, we have an update on how things have been going across the, the major market indices and across the world. And, boy, stocks can continue to do pretty well across the board, guys. Yep, things are looking good. Yeah. Um, year-to-date, for example, you have the Dow Jones up about 17%. You have the S&P 500 up about 15%. You have uh, small cap value up about 15%. Just uh, naming a couple across the board here. Inter- international stocks down a little bit uh, uh, relative to um, domestic stocks. Large cap stocks there, about 9%. I think the most remarkable thing at this period of time probably is, is the story on gold here. Yeah. Uh, about 17% it looks like. 17% today, which is about the opposite of the Dow, so yeah. it's a 34% yeah. difference. You know, in talking with clients about that, I still get questions, obviously, about what asset classes should be included. Does it make sense to own gold? And, and uh, you know, my answer is usually the same, that uh, holding gold makes some sense in a diversified portfolio, but isn't uh, something that you would, you normally want to load up on. Um, and mainly there, that part of the reason is that, boy, it has a lot of risk, price risk anyway, right? Uh, through the years, it's gone up a lot recently, but also has the potential to go down a lot at any given time. So, Well, and, and it doesn't produce anything, right? I mean, your stocks, even if they're not, the price isn't moving around, you're still getting dividends. With bonds, you're getting coupon payments. With right. gold, you're getting something shiny. It's true. <laughs> it looks nice. <laughs> indeed, indeed. And one thing that's not brought up enough is just the administrative costs of owning it. Yeah. Where are you going to store it? Where um, you know, there's costs associated with, especially if you, you own gold outright and not through a proxy like a gold mining company, which has its own issues. Yeah, sure. So if you hold gold in any significant degree, I mean, it's one thing to hold one gold bar, but if you own lots of gold bars, a little more difficult, obviously. Mm-hmm. And getting back to something you mentioned earlier, Ethan, the uh, international markets, uh, they're up about 9% this year. The uh, IFA, which is Europe, Asia, and Far East mm-hmm. uh, developed countries, uh, 9%. I mean, it's it's low compared to the U.S. markets, but I mean, we're not even halfway through the year. That's right. That's still pretty darn good return. Yeah, not even halfway, not even halfway over yet this year, and mm-hmm. normally that would be a full year's of return there. So I totally agree with that. That's a, it's a very good point. Very good point. Um, so we'll see what the, the future holds with stocks uh, in terms of the, the, 
how we're going to finish up the year here. But, uh, boy, it's been a strong start, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. No mm-hmm. question about it. Hey, Lauren, I think we're going to, we're going to talk about um, an article that you had um, found here recently. I noticed you've been sending it to a couple of clients, and I thought maybe you could just highlight uh, what the article is a little bit and uh, what you find uh, important to communicate about it. Yeah, well, in this month's uh, issue of Financial Plan- Planning Magazine, uh, they, there was an article by, uh, by a professor at BYU, mm-hmm. and he uh, brings up the age-old question, value versus growth, which investing strategy is better? And I think you know, among, among us here, uh, we, we've looked at this research plenty, but it, it kind of brings to my attention that there's a lot of people who haven't if, if this is uh, newsworthy material here. Right. But, uh, um, he, he goes on to review the last 23 years, it's 1990 through 2012, mm-hmm. and looks at the return on growth versus value in both or in all large, mid-cap, and small-cap stocks in the U.S. Um, it comes to no surprise that uh, the value stocks uh, outperform the growth stocks um, in each of the categories from as little, just under 1% in large-cap to over 2.5% in the small-cap category over that 23-year period. Um, yeah, uh, and uh, again, not a surprise to us because we've delved pretty deep into this area. Mm-hmm. But uh, um, yeah, I think it's probably news to a lot of folks, especially when you consider in the 1990s is included, which was the tech boom, and you know the growth stocks were right. king for a, for a significant part of it. Yeah, several so. years in a row there mm-hmm. toward the end of the 90s. That's for sure. Yeah, so to give you a, a specific example, I'm looking at the data that Lauren provided here, looking at small caps uh, as, uh, as an example. Looking at small cap growth, the average return for the 23-year period ending December 31st, 2012 was 7.68% per year over that entire span versus uh, U.S. small cap value stocks, uh, which returned at 1034 over that same period. So significant difference in returns there. Well, and, that, and just the, the few percentage points doesn't sound all that different. But if you you got to remember this is compounding. And at the uh, end here, we've got in value of $10,000. For the small cap growth, it's $54,836. For small cap value, it's $96,220. Wow, so it's almost double. Not quite, but almost double mm-hmm. the actual ending dollars over that period of time. Yeah, yeah that's a really good point. And you know, we, we tend to talk about just percentages and, and that sort of thing often enough among ourselves. And, and just intuitively know that, boy, it's compound that over many years equals large difference in ending value, but it's really good to, f- to focus on the dollars. And, you know, and any, any, if any person's out there thinking, well, what's really the difference in any one year? You're, you're right. It probably doesn't matter a lot. It's a difference of a couple of bucks in any one year. But again, that compounding effect. Think about your time horizon, right? I mean, how long are, are we going to be invested, guys, as a group here? I mean, mm-hmm. how many decades longer will, will, will we be invested? How many decades long will our clients be invested? Well, that's, that's how long these things have to, have to play out and come to your favor, basically, by investing uh, more in the style, the value approach. Sure. Uh, one interesting uh, component of the study is they took rolling five-year periods mm-hmm. over that uh, time span, and f- 42% of the time growth actually outperformed value with, with the majority of the time value outperforming growth over five-year rolling periods. I see. Um, 
So again, and I think this has always been our, our approach, just because we know value will outperform in the long, long term, we don't just stick to value. Uh, we have a balanced portfolio, but we definitely emphasize value. Right. Um, and that's, that's what they are saying as well in this article. But, uh, yeah. Yeah, it brings up a good point about the, the periods of, of outperformance. I don't have the numbers in front of me, but we, we have some, some, uh, some numbers on mm-hmm. 10-year periods, 20-year periods, 40-year periods. And I think in 20-year periods and up, value will outperform growth every single time. Right. Yeah, even in any one year, the data shows that it's uh, more likely than not. Better than 50-50 odds that value beats growth in any one year mm-hmm. as well, which is I mean, certainly if you're going to be placing bets, and in a way that's kind of what we're doing here, you want to place the bets on the right side of the, uh, of, of the table, right? Mm-hmm. Go with the odds, not against the odds. And, and indeed, that's what it does show out. So explain to me why I still go to a, a seminar and we have a money manager that tells everyone that they are not value investors, they are growth investors. Why does that still occur? <laughs> yeah, to me, I mean, Eric, maybe you have a different answer, but I think it's, it's people not looking at the data objective, objectively. Mm-hmm. Well, I, that's, that's part of it. And I think part of it is, uh, you know, we, 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 we all believe we're above average, right? I mean, yeah. we, you can see... Hundreds and thousands of studies that saying, "Look, people aren't gonna aren't gonna beat the market. Growth isn't gonna outperform value in the long run." But but everyone knows that they're special. They're the ones who this particular money manager is the one who's going to. They're going to be the, the one who the exception to the rule, right? And also, you have you have periods like the the '90s where growth did outperform. Yeah, you have growth companies like Apple, like Google, you know that if you or Amazon, if you get in the startups, you make tons and tons of money. Apple was at a I think in 2001, it was at $9 a share. And it was at $700 a share last year. Right, right. That's amazing, right? It's an amazing story. So if, you, if you pick the next Apple, you pick the next Amazon. Yeah, I think it really is one of those things where it's the, the hope of, of, of triumph over reason, right? Mm-hmm. It's one of those things where even, like Lauren, your example, you have the person who is um, a growth-oriented manager uh, suggesting that they've, they've cracked the code, as it were. They've figured out how to invest only in stocks that will beat the market over periods of time. Mm-hmm. We all really intuitively want to believe that. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd love for Santa Claus to be real, right? Or, you <laughs> win know, the lottery. I'd love to win the lottery, too, right? Who wouldn't want all those things? So I'm hoping that's true, but in the, in the end, at the end of the day, um, truly those, those things don't work out, generally speaking. I mean, I haven't found Santa Claus really in our living room uh, in the morning, that sort of thing. So I think it's one of those things. We all want to believe it so badly. Sometimes we just kind of just go with it, even though instinctively, perhaps we don't really believe it's true. Sure. Well, mm-hmm. I mean, I think getting back to the lottery ticket, I mean, it's, anybody can spend a few dollars on a lottery ticket, and it's kind of fun. You don't expect to win. Yeah. But it's like, oh, well, you're, you're, sort of, you're sort of buying the chance to dream, right? Well, right. if I did win, you know, I'd buy all these boats, and Ethan buy lots of Camrys. You'd have a fleet of them. <laughs> That's right. But <laughs> That's a good point. But, I mean, we've, we've brought this up before in the radio show. That doesn't mean it's a good investment strategy to, to you know, cash out your, your 401k and buy a bunch of lottery tickets. Yeah, certainly it's different, right? It's, it's a different thing to go out and invest your entire retirement on, a, on, a, on a, basically a flawed growth type of strategy if you're picking one between growth versus value and buying a couple bucks on a lotto ticket. There, the reward there for the risk is very re- amazing difference, right, with the, with the lotto tickets. Mm-hmm. But really the reward uh, is likely to be a lot less with the growth strategy looking at retirement and, and, and those sorts of things anyway. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think also there's a component that goes back to the the, the dark history of of Wall Street and the s- selling product. Yeah. And there's a lot. It's a lot easier to sell something with the growth behind it. It's just much, much more sexy and definitely more exciting story. Mm-hmm. No question about that. No doubt about that. 
Yeah, we'll look at both. I mean, uh, just to really quickly get into what growth and value stocks are, mm-hmm. uh, they're they're measured by the, among other things, the price to earnings ratio. Right. If a stock has a low uh, price relative to its earnings, then it's considered a value stock. If it's high, it's considered growth. Mm-hmm. Those both sound pretty good. Well, this is a value stock. You know, it's there's a lot of value in it. But this other stock's a growth stock, and it's got a lot of growth potential. Well, those are it, it's it's two sides of of a coin. They can't both be good, right? Right. So, but you know, it's like it's sort of a nice euphemism for it. So people like the name growth. Yeah, sure. Who doesn't want their money to grow? Yeah, sure. Right. If you just don't tell, don't, don't have a definition next to the word. What one do you want? Mm-hmm. Well, sure, it would like growth. And indeed, you, you tend to get growth in terms of a capital appreciation with value stocks. It's just the, the definition of uh, what category the stock is, not so much their, I guess, opportunity. Mm-hmm. Is, I guess the yeah. way I'd say that. And I guess if you're a broker, how hard is it? If you're trying to sell a stock to a client. How hard is it to sell Apple when they're in the headlines <laughs> all the time? And the, I mean, that's pretty easy. True, right? I think it has to be one of the easiest stocks to sell. So right, and maybe not right now, but <laughs> yeah, but a year ago, right? A year yeah, ago, yeah. two years ago, in, 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 near its peak or anywhere on the run up toward its peak, that's probably true. You know, it makes me think of um, you know four or five, maybe six years ago. I was having conversations about Starbucks at that time. They've been on a winning streak, beating earnings every single time for many, many you know quarters in a row. Um, on the most sudden, it didn't meet it anymore, right? And obviously, that cra- that stock went down significantly for a period of years. It took a long time to recover. Now it's back up again. But boy, at that time, it was very, very hot, kind of like Apple was about a year ago mm-hmm. or so. And um, I was making the the point, contrasting that stock at that time versus Ford. Which at that time, if you recall, was heading going through lots of trouble. Mm-hmm. You know, we weren't sure that Ford was going to be around in a couple of years. Right. Um, if they did, uh, if they did make it through this difficult period, they would obviously have a nice performance in the stock price, which is exactly what happened. I think because it did survive the, the period, it even thrived during the uh, after the crisis was over as well. Right. But just contrasting the two different styles of the growth versus the value stocks. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. I think we have about uh, well twenty seconds till the break here, so we'll wrap it up for this segment. Um, Feel free to give us a call if you'd like to join the show today, 866-472-5790, or shoot us an email at empirical, I'm sorry, contact at empiricalradio.com, and we'll be happy to talk with you. Thanks, and be right back. Business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. Are you an individual investor looking for a trusted financial advisor? Or are you a financial professional looking to connect with a world-class wealth management firm? My name is Simon Liu, Portfolio Manager with Empirical Wealth Management, inviting you to contact us at 1-800-923-4307. That's 1-800-923-4307. Or visit our website at EmpiricalFS.com. That's E-M-P-I-R-I-C-A-L-F-S.com. Our mission at Empirical is to provide clients with the most effective, unbiased investment and financial planning advice available. Empirical is changing the way investment advice is delivered by striving to put our clients' interests first. Call us now to get started with a no-cost, no-obligation discovery process. The number again is 1-800-923-4307. Or you can begin this process on our website at EmpiricalFS.com. As your business grows, are you growing with it? Do you have the right balance of time, attention, work, and personal life? 
Take the growing pains out of growth and tune into The Business Edge with Marsha Zidle. If you are spending most of your energy managing problems rather than focusing on taking your business to the next level, our program will give you the steps you need to make sure you have everything in place for forward-thinking business leadership. The Business Edge is heard every Wednesday at 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Empirical Investing Radio with Ken Smith and co-host Ethan Broga. To call into the program with a question or comment, please dial 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to contact at empiradio.com. Now, back to Ken and Ethan. All right, welcome back. Uh, Empirical Investing Radio. Your host here, uh, Ethan Broga, alongside Eric Clear and Lauren Enquist. Uh, for this segment, uh, we were going to talk about, uh, Eric, an article that you'd uh, come across here in the last couple of days. I think it talks about hedge funds, right? It does talk about hedge funds, one of our favorite subjects. Yeah. <laughs> What's the nature of the article? Okay, this is an article from Bloomberg.com by uh, someone named Jesse Westbrook. Mm-hmm. And the headline is, Hedge Funds Trail S&P 500 by 10 Percentage Points, Goldman says. Wow. It's so, uh, a pretty hefty number. It's eye-catching for sure. Yeah. So I'll read a little bit of this. Yeah, let's go. We can kind of talk about it. So hedge fund returns have stayed lackluster this year, with a $2.3 trillion industry trailing the gains of the Standard & Poor's 500 index by about 10 percentage points, according to Goldman Sachs. Mm -hmm. Hedge funds gained 5.4% on average through May 10th, compared to a 15.4% rise for the S&P 500, and a 14.8% increase for the typical mutual fund. Wow. Yeah, and it goes on to say, hedge fund managers have been hurt in 2013 by their bearish, bearish wagers on stock with popular shorts such as Johnson & Johnson and Gilead Sciences rising more than the broader equity market, Golden says. Mm-hmm. So we should just stop and talk about that for a second. Okay. Popular shorts. So th- these, are, these are companies that should be, uh, if, if they're getting shorts sold by these hedge funds, for the most part, they're assuming that they're going to go down. Right. Or at least advance significantly re- less than the rest of the market. Uh-huh. And not only did that not happen, they actually went up faster than the market. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> I see. So. That's not a good outcome for those guys. It's, it's not. Wow. Okay. Fewer than 5% of the hedge funds tracked by New York-based Goldman Sachs are beating the S&P 500 or a typical mutual fund that buys stocks of the biggest U.S. companies. Um, hedge funds, which typically charge clients a 2% management fee and 20% of any investment gains, which that component won't be so much this year, it sounds like. <laughs> That's a good point. Are private pools of capital that can bet on both rising and falling asset prices. From the start of 2009 to the end of April this year, the average fund has risen 21% after fees compared with a 77% gain for the U.S. benchmark S&P 500. Wow, hang on a second. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. From the start of 2009 to the end of April of this year, the average fund has risen 21% after fees compared to a 70%, 77% gain for U.S. S&P 500 shareholders, basically. Mm-hmm. That's a phenomenal difference. Yeah, We don't, we don't even need to talk about the magic compounding to Holy express how, how huge of a difference that is. 
That's amazing. Now, did hedge funds do significantly better than the market in the crisis? Yes. On average? Yes. Okay. I think on average they were only down maybe 20 to 25% when the S&P okay. was down 50%. Right. But well, still. Uh-huh. But that's an amazing difference uh, for folks who are really placing bets on. on and that's the mm-hmm. average, right? So clearly yeah. there are funds that did much worse than that, and there are some mm-hmm. that did, probably did better. Yeah. I mean, five, fewer than 5% of hedge funds beat the S&P 500. So there were a few of them out there that did, but yeah. fewer than 5%. Wow. So is this, are these uh, all hedge funds or hedge funds that practice just certain strategies? This would be all, all hedge funds that report their earnings. Okay. Um, hedge funds are, uh, just to quickly get into hedge funds, mm-hmm. what they are, like I said, they're, 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 uh, they're pools of capital. Uh, just like a mutual fund, but they're they're they have much less regulation. Right, um, you have to be an accredited investor, which uh, means you have to have, I believe, over a million in assets or annual income over two hundred fifty thousand dollars a year. Uh-huh. Um, and they they just they they don't have the same liquidity requirements. They don't have the same reporting requirements. Uh, at any given time, they don't have to tell you, if, even if you're invested in them, what they're holding. Yeah, a lot less oversight. Yeah, a lot less oversight. Uh, they have a lot more freedom with the strategies they're allowed to take. They can use uh, lots of leverage. They can short, sell stocks. Mm-hmm. Um, they can hold all kinds of derivatives. A lot of things that, that a typical mutual fund can't do. Yeah, yeah. And the the idea behind them, which of course it sounds appealing. I mean, you you hear about hedge funds. Oh, that you know, it sounds uh, exotic. These guys can they can do all these crazy things they, like I said they can short sell they can buy derivatives they're, they're flexible they can you know they, they are theoretically the, the smartest people in the business uh, they're going to make these outsized returns but, but they're going to be nimble enough to dodge market crashes right um, which is why, why it's worth paying them these extraordinarily high fees right. you know I, I think the results here just from looking at uh, not just this last few months, but for the last probably year and a half or so, stock returns have been very good across the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and looking at the difference in returns between that and, again, the hedge funds over the, recently have, have done far, far worse than the market in general. Um, it's amazing to me, and you hit on it there just a minute ago, that if you're a hedge fund in a hedge fund, if you're the manager of a hedge fund, for example, you're obviously you have a pretty um, high degree of education. You're very qualified. You, know, you, know, you don't get those types of jobs with, with being somebody doesn't have an education or experience or any of that stuff. Sure. You're, you're, like you said, the smartest of the bunch there, basically. Mm. And if those folks um, get it wrong, you know, obviously they're getting they're underperforming the market at large. They're doing something, you know, they're they're, they're doing it on purpose, right? They're mm-hmm. trying to take their information and turn it into better returns, and then the market over a period of time, and they're unable to do that as well. It's extremely difficult to do. Yeah, and this is this just me just highlights that mm-hmm. yeah, basically, and. It, and, and we, we make that point a lot about uh, active stock picking mutual funds. Right. You know, they, these guys can't beat the market on a consistent basis. The numbers will show that. And, and those funds will charge you one, one and a half percent. Right. These guys are underperforming the market and they're charging 2% and 20% of any positive gains they do make. Mm-hmm. So the bar for these guys to, to outperform things like index funds is extremely high. Right. Which is why they generally don't outperform these funds. Right. That's definitely had a lot to do with it, no doubt about it. Uh, what does it say here? I'm reading on here. It talks about um, Google and Apple and, and Citigroup and so forth. Um, 
Oh, I see. Basically, they're saying that uh, over this period, they were most bullish on those particular stocks. Apple as an example, which obviously hasn't done very well at all here recently. Well, and, and I think uh, that really a lot of the, the hedge funds getting really behind Apple was when it hit $700, which was not uncommon. When, when Apple hit $700, it could do no wrong. Every time, even if it was bad news about Apple, the, the price still went up. Right, right. So I, I think that that sort of highlights that even these hedge fund managers, these geniuses with their huge research staffs and everything, they're, they're um, I guess, all sort of fall victim to the same fallacies that any of us make. Then we see something doing well. Yeah, not immune to them, for sure. Yeah. You know, it's, they, they, want to, they want to jump on the train, right? The Apple's going to a million. Right. So we all have to buy it. And, well, it, it works till it doesn't. <laughs> exactly. Well, that's the good stuff. I appreciate bringing that article to, to the uh, table here and talking about it with us. Um, do we have uh, another one as well here that we wanted to dive into before the break? Uh, we could do that. All right. Um, this is uh, an article that Elliot forwarded me from uh, the Wall Street Journal. Okay. It's called Stop Playing the Stock Market. Mm-hmm. Investing isn't a game no matter how easy it looks. All right. I like it so far. Yeah. And it... Uh, I'll summarize this because we don't have a whole lot of time in the segment. All but right. It's about, uh, they had, I guess, a an investment challenge um, all over the country, mm-hmm. uh, in all 50 states, where they have, a, I guess this is an annual thing, every year uh, a bunch of students will pick some stocks. They will have an investment strategy and they'll see how they do. Right. And uh, it's talked about, you'll, you'll hear these, these stories, you'll see these things on the on Yahoo Finance, on Bloomberg sometime. It's like, oh, you know, 12-year-old outperforms S&P by 10%. Sure. And the, the reaction to these always kind of makes me laugh. You know, you'll be the, the, the parents of the kid will be like, oh, well, maybe I should have my kid invest my money. Right. You know, but what, what, are, these, what are these kids? If they're, you're, a, you're a 12-year-old kid. You're, you're doing this, this investment game, essentially. Uh-huh. What, are you, what are you using? What methodology are you using to select your stocks? That's a good question. You know, I, I, I don't know. You'd have to talk to the kids, but, but I'm guessing it's not that sophisticated. <laughs> probably not. There's probably not a whole lot of, of valuation going on. They're probably not. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe they're throwing darts like monkeys. That's <laughs> possible. <laughs> yeah, you know, they're probably not going through these companies' balance sheets. They're probably not doing any sort of macroeconomic analysis, right. which is what a lot, of the, a lot of the big fund managers will do. Sure. Uh, and they're outperforming them. So well, what does that tell you? Right. I mean, it goes back to the coin flipping analogy. Exactly. Right? You fill a football stadium with people. Everyone flips their coin yeah. one after another. Right. If you flip a heads, then you have to sit down. There's somebody that's going to flip tails 50 times in a row. Now, are they better at flipping coins than the rest of them? <laughs> Probably not. If, this no. is, if it's the right coin, no. It's a fair coin. Interesting. So that's the nature of this. Uh, what was the outcome of this particular case? I think well, this is a... Uh, this was just a commentary. Oh, I and see. I think the point was sort of similar to what we're saying: is that look, it's this is clearly luck. I mean, it's these they don't have any secret system. They, they don't they don't have the secret sauce. They're not beating the market because they they know what stocks are going to be better than others. They're picking them at random. Right. And with mutual fund managers, even with some hedge funds, they will outperform. It's not because they're they're better than the market. They're, they're they're not smarter than an efficient market. They get lucky, right? Right. Yeah. And certainly, I, I've, we've talked about this in the past. I think with the return attribution studies, where uh, if you think of say a large cap mutual fund manager and 
um, if you attribute the returns to where it's from, you end up getting a, a cross-section of things. Well, it's going to be either the, the growth to value in the portfolio or the large caps versus small cap stocks in the portfolio. Those have been basically determined to figure out most of the return or account for most of the returns in a diversified portfolio. Mm-hmm. Uh, it isn't, so it isn't so much the skill of, of the managers. It's more attributed to those two things, sure. which is the case. Well, so, and, and let's think about what does it mean to be average? You know, you're, you're right in the middle. So half the people are going to be better than average in any given period. Right. Right. And if you had someone who was above average every single year, there might be something to that. But those don't really exist. That's for sure. Especially not in advance. Yeah. Right. I mean, how would you know beforehand if this person is going to be average next year? Right. It's very good to have, or very easy to find things after the fact, like looking at, yeah. looking at the Morningstar ratings as an example of that. Mm-hmm. Um, you can find a five-star fund. They exist, but mm-hmm. did you know it? Did you have it? Did you own it before it turned five stars? Right. When it had that, had the good performance. Mm-hmm. And then usually the, the case is no, and, and then after you buy it, well, no longer re- performs like a five-star fund. Sure. Right. It's one of those kind of things. Yeah. And, and every fund, every manager has a compelling story about why they're going to be outperform. Right. Or when they do outperform, why they did. But indeed. Again, we, we're not all above average. <laughs> that's true. Just even. Yeah. Well, only in some things. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's it for this segment. I think coming coming toward the end of the, this this part of the show. Um, if you'd like to to reach us, feel free to give us a call at eight six six four seven two five seven nine zero or uh, via email at contact at empiradio.com. Thanks a lot. Talk to you soon. America Business Network. Are you an individual investor looking for a trusted financial advisor? Or are you a financial professional looking to connect with a world-class wealth management firm? My name is Simon Liu, Portfolio Manager with Empirical Wealth Management, inviting you to contact us at 1-800-923-4307. That's 1-800-923-4307. Or visit our website at empiricalfs.com. That's E-M-P. I-R-I-C-A-L-F-S dot com. Our mission at Empirical is to provide clients with the most effective, unbiased investment and financial planning advice available. Empirical is changing the way investment advice is delivered by striving to put our clients' interests first. Call us now to get started with a no-cost, no-obligation discovery process. The number again is 1-800-923-4307. Or you can begin this process on our website at EmpiricalFS.com. We hear it and read about it every day in the news. America is heading over a fiscal cliff. Home prices are still receding and unemployment growing. How can you preserve and increase your wealth in this kind of economy? Tune in to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with host Jay Taylor. Jay will explain the decline of our monetary system and the economy and will give you winning investment ideas and the tools to protect and increase your wealth. Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio, Voice America Business Network.
You are listening to Empirical Investing Radio with Ken Smith and co-host Ethan Broga. To call into the program with a question or comment, please dial 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to contact at empiradio.com. Now, back to Ken and Ethan. All right, we're back. Empirical Investing Radio. Your host, uh, Ethan Broga, alongside Eric Lear and uh, Lauren Enquist. Thanks for joining the show today, guys. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the regular host, uh, as you know, superstar Ken Smith is out of town this week, and uh, I'm sure he'll be back. Uh, I don't think he'll be back next week, but the week after. He'll be back next week. Really on Thursday? Yeah. Oh, only one show he's going to miss then. Oh. Well, that's, that's not, not sad news. That's good news. I, I think he should be back for every show. I'm surprised he's out of town during a radio broadcast, to be honest with you. He's spreading Empirical's <laughs> message all over the world. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, thanks for being here, guys. I appreciate it. Uh, we're here for our, our third segment of the day. This is uh, we're about 12 minutes to have a nice discussion on something that we've all been, been probably asked here recently. Uh, Lauren, I know you have as you work directly with clients. Uh, Eric, maybe not quite as much, but certainly you've talked about this before. We've, we've all talked about this before. And that is this, that, uh, hey, the market hitting new, new all-time highs, you know, the Dow has now reached or exceeded 15,000, which is a pretty remarkable feat. Um, you know, it's uh, the previous peak uh, back in 2007, I think, was about 14,400 or so in that range. Around there, yeah. So it's been a quite a long time to get back to this, uh, mm-hmm. this level anyway. And uh, that has a lot of people asking the question, hey, is it time to be out of stocks now that we've reached all new, new all-time highs? Mm-hmm. And uh, so, I thought we'd talk about that briefly. Mm-hmm. That sounds good. Um, I talked to we I put together a bit of a letter actually in the last uh, couple of days and sent it out to clients here recently, just talking about this exact thing. Because I had a couple of clients ask me directly, uh, either meetings or via via phone conversations or email exchanges, that sort of thing. And uh, it's very common to have that feeling. Uh, basically, is what the, the gist of it is. And I, I kind of take the the discussion in two ways. One, I kind of answer it uh, this way, where, hey, let's look at market history. What does market history tell us about where, you know, as we reach previous peaks in the past, does that mean what's the next performance for the next one year, two year, or three year, or next period of time, right? Mm -hmm. And I didn't actually have the data at my fingertips, but it turns out that DFA, uh, Dimensional Fund Advisors, ran um, a study for their research group and uh, to address this question. So they tested the time period from 1962 through the end of, actually, to so to date, 2013. And all, basically what they did is this. Um, they went through and once the market uh, peak was reached, what did the subsequent time period look like in terms of performance or returns? And here they broke it down by either the next one month you know, after the, the, the previous peak or three months or six months or 12 months. And I think you guys have seen this as well. Yes. Um, well, it turns out that in, in one month after a high was reached, it turns out about 59.3% of the time, the S&P index was actually higher in a month than it was previously. Uh, in the three-month period after a new high was reached, it was 63% of the time that it was higher still <laughs> in the future. Right? Six months looking out, six months, it was 71% of the time it was higher. And then for a 12-month, a full year, uh, it turns out that 72% of the time the S&P was higher still. So it doesn't really seem to be any, any, anything to the notion anyway that, hey, we should sell stocks and then you know, and, and wait till they start drop to get back in again, sure. basically. Um, and to kind of test that case, to kind of well on its own, that is interesting. But I'm not sure that's the, uh, we draw a lot of conclusions from that by itself anyway. Right. So they also did this. They also just tested well. 
what was the case after any previous level? So just any market down day, any market up day, any market on average, in any given day, what, where was the index in the subsequent one month, three month, six month, and 12 month time frames? And interestingly, they're almost identical. There's virtually, virtually no difference in my opinion that uh, relative to when cases where the index had reached a new high. Mm-hmm. So it seems to be nothing to the notion as to when to be out in that respect. Do you have anything to add to that, Eric? Well, and this is this is uh, if I remember correctly, this is daily data. Uh, yeah, that's right. For what fifty some years, a long period of time, thousands and thousands of data points. So this isn't just you know, well, what what happened over the last year or so. Yeah, right. So I mean, I think these are numbers we can probably feel pretty confident. Yeah, with. and and I think it's important to remember that um, the market hits new highs all the time. I mean, it, it hasn't in the, in the past, I guess, five years. And then we had a little, we had a, the early 2000s were sort of a rough period as well. But, but think what it was doing before that. Right. I mean, it, it, it's, it's not like the market, every time it hits a new high, spikes downward and then gradually climbs up again. That, the 2008 was, was a, you know, once in a three-generation event. Yes, right. So just because that, that happened in, on the most recent market highs doesn't mean it's something we should always expect. I, I think that's a great point. That's what's fresh in everyone's mind. That last time we were here, we had to deal with, with the whole financial crisis. And, um, so everyone has that in their mind. But it's also to, you know, important to understand there were significant problems with the in- industries that got hit. It wasn't like the market went down just because it was high or a little overvalued. They all kinds of problems in the way we did business um, were uncovered. So, um, yeah, yeah, I agree. No, and I, I also often find out, or especially on the media, you, know, you hear people talking about their their take on the market. You get the market gurus out there. You know, you get the the folks who are. You know, my favorite is Harry Dent. Oh, Harry Dent. I, I can't get away from the guy. Even today, I'm looking. At, I you know, I look at the market. Uh, on Google Finance, so I know where the Dow is or, or whatever the index is doing at any point in time. And just to the right of where that information is contained, I have a little advertisement for Harry Dent, which is, as you guys probably know, uh, one of the biggest prognosticators out there. Mm-hmm. Written several books. Um, uh, <laughs> the the World War 2000s was one of those. We talked about him on the show before. Yeah. Uh, he, he to, to recap, anyone not familiar with Harry Dent, he made a prediction back in the, in the 80s that Japan was going to have a crash. And he got that right. Okay. And uh, as far as I know, everything he's predicted since then has been not just wrong, but orders of magnitude wrong. Yes. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> so he, Way off the mark. In, uh, I think in around 2000, he predicted the Dow was going to 40,000. That's correct. I read that book uh, at the time. Or maybe, he was wrong about that. Or maybe it was, was, was 20,000 at that point, and then in 2006, it was 40,000. Uh, I recall it was forty thousand. Forty thousand on the Dow by the end of the decade. By the end of the decade, and then uh, I think we we saw an article or a book he wrote a couple of years ago. There, the Dow's heading to three thousand. Right. So, one thing I will give him credit for is that he, you know, he, he doesn't hedge. He he goes. He swings for the fences every single time. Right. 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 Well, he, he's the kind of person I would use as an example of, of somebody who might say, "Well, who cares about the market history?" So the, the data we just went over that. You know, we calculated each data point from 1952 through 2003 and looked at the, the again, daily data, looking at the S&P from, from today versus where is it from a month, three months, six months, and so forth. That type of stuff, in my view, is very, very meaningful. 
you know, it's something we can, like you said, hey, it's a big data set. It isn't like we're looking at one year or five years, mm-hmm. right? It's since 1962, which is a long, long, long period of time. Lots and lots of data points. From that, we can draw pretty reasonable conclusions. Um, but I still hear the folks who, who say, pundits, and, and often sometimes even uh, folks that I meet with from time to time, who say this time it's different. Mm-hmm. Right? This, therefore, this past data stuff really is, is meaningless. Right? And I, I always I cringe at that because how else do we have, how else do we have then to make decisions? If we're all reinventing the wheel, as it were, hey, it's new for me every single time I wake up in the morning, it's Groundhog Day every day, well, that's not a very good thing. You're not, you're not learning anything, basically. Um, and I had the point here, I think, in the letter that I wrote out was, can you imagine a world doctors who felt this way, right? They're meeting with clients, they have an illness, but they choose to ignore the medical research on the patient's illness and just go with their gut, basically. The, you're throwing away the fact that people have researched this topic before and know how to treat the disease. Well, that would be, be malpractice, right? Well, but it's different this time. It's the new, nor- new normal, right? I don't think I don't think that it is. More, far more often than not, it, it isn't nor- new. It's just new to you. Right. That's the main thing, right? And, and, and we we like hammer this point into the ground all the time. But you have to remember in the financial media, what what, what is their objective? Right. You know, they're trying to grab your attention. They're trying to sell. I guess no one sells newspapers anymore, but they're trying to get clicks. <laughs> Clicks on their web page, <laughs> right? You know, so what, what's the most sensational thing they can say that'll get get you the reader, you know, fixed on this? What's what's going on? I have to I have to look into this. Yeah, certainly their motivations, and we talked about that again, is is uh, not the same as you might think, right? You know, we, we know very well that they really have to sell advertising to make money, mm-hmm. and everybody wants to have a job. Well, most people do, right? Certainly, people working there do, and that's how they do it, right? Mm-hmm. They try to make it. Uh, not as sensationalistic as possible, but certainly more along that line than, than trying to provide solid, sound financial advice for you and me. Right. It's not their, it's not their job, not their objective to educate you. Right. Exactly correct. That is exactly right. So, you know, if, if, if looking at the past data doesn't really tell us that there's anything going on with, uh, in terms of something we can glean from the future of, of the market based on uh, market reaching new highs and this time really isn't different. What, what do we have to, to kind of make decisions on? And Eric, you probably could speak to this very well, but um, one of the things we rely on is value, market valuations. Right. So it really is the, the price that you pay for the stock is really the main thing that matters, in my view. Um, and what do we mean by that? Well, we talked about, again, the price-to-earnings ratio is one measurement of how expensive or how cheap a particular stock is. Uh, think back in the, in the late 90s here again, looking at the tech, tech boom time. You had... You know, tech stocks trading at 100 times earnings. Right. Know, infinitely high. <laughs> so it had zero, negative <laughs> earnings. Yeah, no earnings. <laughs> right? No earnings, right? Uh, or 200 times earnings or 300 times earnings, some, something like that. Where, you know, if you take it by itself, boy, it's unusual then to have. If you're looking at other technology stocks at that time, it's unusual to have a company trading at 100 times earnings, 200 times earnings. It is what it is at that point. So that's kind of where you understand. If you look in the past and you realize, boy, the average, the long-term average for a price-to-earnings ratio is more along the lines of 15 or so, well, then you can know for sure that something's really out of whack. Mm-hmm. Like, if the stock's trading at 15 and the stock you're thinking about buying is trading at 200 price to earnings, what's going on there? Right. Presents probably a lot more risk than you might think. Mm-hmm. You right. have to be really confident that the earnings of that stock are going to shoot up. Yes, exactly. Because to, to, in a long run average, right, these, that means that stocks are going to hover somewhere in that region. So if, if the P-E ratio is really, really high... It's going to come down. It's going to come down one of two ways. Either the earnings are going to increase right. or the price is going to drop. Right. And in the tech bubble, the price dropped and dropped in a hurry. Right, exactly. And also probably the earnings too, I suppose, at some yeah. point. Now. <laughs> yeah, both, well, both sides of the coin did there. Yeah. Ask uh, what 
Pets.com. Yeah, that's exactly right. And we, we know now that, uh, obviously, in with hindsight, that there wasn't this new paradigm going on. Although, at the time, it seemed different, right? With the Once internet. Again. The internet's changing everything. That's, that's why you can have companies trading at 200 right. times earnings. Well, it changes some things, but that's really not everything, as it turns out. Right. Um, so, you know, when we're looking at, at, at portfolio decisions, that's one of the things we're looking at across the board uh, is, hey, per asset class, and usually we have about 15 unique asset classes in, in and among our equi- global, e- global equity portfolios. Right. Each of them we can tell month to month, basically, hey, where are they on a valuation basis? And then, therefore, make decisions on how much, uh, what proportion that particular asset group should make up or comprise of our clients' portfolios. Um, and luckily for us, that thing doesn't change, you know, rapidly. You know, it doesn't change overnight usually. Usually it's a, a bit of a slow process. So it doesn't require, require lots and lots of trading to make that, to take account for that basically. But it certainly is one important metric to keep an eye out for. Sure. And I think we, uh, you probably have the numbers there, but I think we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Um, the numbers are, are right in line with their long-term average. That's correct. So looking at the data here just right now, so where are we today hitting the new all-time highs? Well, what's, if that isn't the best measurement of when to be in, in and out of stocks, what's the price-to-earnings ratio right now? I'm seeing on the S&P 500. And uh, I have it right here. It's actually 17.23 as of May 20th, which is uh, on the, and the average here I have from 1962 through 2013. Average is 18.6. So, so if, if anything, the market is cheap. Below. Slightly yeah. under. You know, slightly under. And I was talking to Ken earlier, uh, you know, couple of shows ago, basically saying that, boy, in an environment when interest rates are so, so low, where bonds are incredibly low in terms of, of their, their dividends and so forth, it may, may make some sense to have slightly overvalued stocks relative to historical averages, but still, we're, so we're ab- below average, actually, mm-hmm. which I find fascinating. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I think that's it for this segment. We're going to wrap it up here and come back for our last segment. Uh, if you'd like to give us a call, uh, it's 866-472-5790. Or via email at contact at empiradio.com. Talk to you soon. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Are you an individual investor looking for a trusted financial advisor? Or are you a financial professional looking to connect with a world-class wealth management firm? My name is Simon Liu, Portfolio Manager with Empirical Wealth Management, inviting you to contact us at 1-800-923-4307. That's 1-800-923-4307. Or visit our website at empiricalfs.com. That's E-M-P-I-R-I-C-A-L-F-S.com. Our mission at Empirical is to provide clients with the most effective, unbiased investment and financial planning advice available. Empirical is changing the way investment advice is delivered by striving to put our clients' interests first. Call us now to get started with a no-cost, no-obligation discovery process. The number again is 1-800-923-4307. Or you can begin this process on our website at EmpiricalFS.com. In sales, are you a lion or a vulture? Lions don't wait. They just go for it. Vultures hang around until the lions are finished and just pick up the scraps. How can you set yourself apart as a lion? Join the other aspiring sales lions and listen to Forget Patience, Let's Sell Something with host Ty Maynard. You'll learn the tips and strategies of top sales professionals. You'll gain more clients at a faster rate and at higher margins. If you're a sales professional, business owner, or executive, listen in every Thursday at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. From the boardroom to you. 
Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Empirical Investing Radio with Ken Smith and co-host Ethan Broga. To call into the program with a question or comment, please dial 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to contact at empiradio.com. Now, back to Ken and Ethan. All right, we are back. Uh, Empirical Investing Radio, your host here, Ethan Broga. Um, this is our last segment of today. And uh, so we'd, if you'd like to join the show, as I mentioned before, feel free to give us a call. We can be reached at 866-472-5790. And also, you know, if you're an individual investor out there looking for some, some help, uh, maybe a second opinion in your current portfolio, uh, perhaps you're, you're getting toward retirement or just entering retirement and would like some expert advice on how to set things up uh, to maximize what you have, Feel free to give us a call here at the office at the uh, beautiful downtown Empirical Towers at uh, 206-923-3474. And feel free to ask for, for Ethan here, and I'll be glad to speak with you. Uh, we're just wrapping up um, our discussion on valuations uh, as a way to, to kind of get an indication of where things are going to be in the future uh, in terms of prices and so forth. But before I get to that, I wanted to mention that it is uh, Eric's birthday today. And uh, I think we have a little birthday gift for you. Happy oh boy. Birthday to you. Sounds like Marilyn Monroe, is that right? Happy birthday. It's actually Lauren Inquest on the microphone. <laughs> He's a ventriloquist. Happy birthday. Oh, that's pretty great. So, Eric, uh, thanks for uh, having a birthday while, you're, while it's a, a radio day as well. It's pretty convenient for us. Well, I try. Yeah, you're yeah. doing a great job. Thank my mom. <laughs> I'll give her a call after the show. Okay. Now, again, happy birthday. Well, thanks, Ethan. All right. Uh, I also want to just point out one last thing to kind of wrap up our conversation on the valuations um, and, or, and or the, the levels of the stock market as we were concluding on our last segment. Okay. Um, you know, looking at valuations is not a perfect measurement. Um, there isn't a perfect way actually to, to know what the future holds, and, and we all know that's inherently true. Sure. Right? Obviously, none of us honestly believe that someone can predict the future. Right. That's not not uh, not real likely. We don't have a, a lot of experience with getting that correct a lot of times. Um, <laughs> People a lot of times make broad guesses at things, and, and what they don't usually have there is preciseness of the timing. Right. So I know, for example, the sun will, or the, the, that uh, stocks will go down at some point in time, but I don't know when that's going to be. So to profit from that decision, though, I have to be t- accurate on the timing, basically. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm getting at. And you know, right now, there's a lot of news out there that isn't, isn't great. You know, things aren't, aren't perfectly wonderful around the world. A lot of macroeconomic issues out there, uh, geopolitical issues out there as well. But the one thing that I know is that in time, corporate earnings tend to increase. And corporate earnings fundamentally is what drives stock prices going up. You know, if they don't, don't increase, then stock prices won't rise. Right. Um, but the track record of, of that happening is very, very good, looking at the last several hundred years of, of capitalism around the world. Right. People want to earn more money. Corporations who are owned by people want to earn more money. People who run companies want to earn more money. There's an economic incentive to innovate. There's an economic incentive to pursue growth, basically. And I think as long as that is fundamentally true, in other words, we're, we're living in a capitalist economy around the world, um, that it's likely, more likely than not that things will continue on that pace over time anyway. Right. So I think the stuff that happens in the meantime a lot of times with uh, the news out there, um, whether it be bad news or good news, a lot of that's noise. It doesn't really affect the long-term growth trajectory of things. 
Absolutely. So, so I just want to point that out. I think that's kind of how I, I look at it. And as long as you can, you can uh, have a diversified portfolio, then you can capture that, that mm -hmm. growth. If you pick the wrong companies, you may you not participate. Exactly. Yeah. You know, I think that's a, that's a great point. I mean, knowing that you don't know the future is in a way empowering because you can then invest appropriately. If you think you know, you can, you're going to make some big mistakes mm -hmm. along the way. You can avoid those big mistakes by knowing that you don't know the, the future. With well, and, and with having the diversified portfolio, you, you sort of take away that regret, right? Yeah. You understand you don't know the future, so you're not going to make bets. Right. And then when you may miss out on a bet, you don't feel bad. You know, you're, you, you're still in the market. You're still capturing the, the market gains right. over time. And, you know, we, we, we tend to always, oh, I should, I should have bought this stock, you know, but you forget all the times where, oh, well, I should buy this stock and it went down. You don't remember that, right? You have a very selective memory as far as all that goes. It's true because it's painful, right? right? And that would force, if you acknowledge that, you would be forced then to make a, a different choices in the future as to not to experience, experience that pain again, right? But a lot of times we just ignore it because it's, it's a painful process to acknowledge it and then, then grow from that. Yeah, well, we, we don't want to admit that, you know, maybe we, we don't know as much as we think we do. Right. No, I agree. I agree with that. That's one of the things that uh, working with a professional advisor helps with. I mean, we, we will bring discipline to the table and provide a very well-grounded framework from which to help you make smart decisions with your investments for the long run and try to eliminate as much of the emotional aspect of things as possible. Sure. So that's one of the things that uh, I think is our primary duty here, basically, at Empirical. Mm -hmm. So, all right, guys. Well, we have a few minutes left here, and uh, about four minutes. And I thought I'd just, uh, if you don't mind, guys, no? go over mm -hmm. one thing that uh, we kind of mentioned before, uh, talked about a little bit anyway. But we'll be doing a whole segment of this. Um, uh, I'm working on it, actually, not as we speak, but off the air. We'll be working on it, uh, pre presenting a, a video. It's actually the the sixth secret of retirement success. And uh, it was a little-known rule uh, back at the end of 2012 that, at least for that year, and, and actually for 2010 and, and 2011 and 2012, because if you recall, the Bush year tax cuts got extended two years there uh, in 2010, uh, rather 2011 and 2012. But the rule is this, basically, that you have, um, if you're in the 15% tax bracket, you can pay no long-term capital gains tax up to the, the top of that bracket. Uh, basically means if you had zero taxable income, but you had you could realize long-term capital gains uh, this year anyway for 2013, you could realize up to $72,500 and pay zero tax on that money, which is an enormous opportunity. Absolutely. Um, it doesn't sound like a lot. I mean, boy, well, my income is, you know, if I look at my AGI, for example, well, gee, I, I make more than that. Or even if you retired, boy, yeah, I'm pretty close to that, so there's really no opportunity there. But the, I think the secret to that all really is, is understanding what your taxable income is and not your, your gross income, right? Right. Um, when you're looking at your taxable income, which is the calculation that you figure that you actually owe tax on, uh, that's the important part. So let's say you have some, I have some examples here we'll, we can kind of go through. Let's say you have uh, a $2 million uh, portfolio, right? It's all taxable, no IRA monies right now. Half of it's in stocks and half of it's in bonds, right? And let's say you get some qualified dividends from the stocks, maybe that's $25,000 a year. But your bonds are invested in municipal bonds. So maybe you get $23,000 there. And, and municipal bonds don't get, don't, aren't included in the tax calculation. They're excluded from tax right? because they're municipal bonds. And let's say, for example, you have just a standard deduction, and also because you, you're married, you have two personal exemptions. In that situation I just described, which is not unreasonable, you have, you're a millionaire, right? You have $2 million 
Mm-hmm. Um, you actually, your taxable income is five grand. Wow. That means in a portfolio, you can realize up to $67,500 of long-term capital gains. And guess what? What? Pay no tax. Wow. No tax. That's right. Isn't that amazing? No tax? Zero tax. None at all. You would pay, I'll say it again, zero tax <laughs> in that situation. That's pretty incredible, right? That is very incredible. So you wouldn't think that, boy, people who have millions of dollars, in this case, pretty simple example, um, would, would be in that situation. Um, and indeed, they, they are, and it's always, often a surprise to folks to, who are in that situation. Well, I have a pretty large portfolio. And maybe I even have some uh, um, Social Security. Maybe I have a pension of some kind mm-hmm. and a sizable portfolio. Even people in that situation often find themselves in the 15% tax bracket and where this rule can apply to them. And ran some figures, and we don't have a lot of time left to wrap this up, but ran some figures and just trying to understand the, 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 the benefit of doing it every single year. So whenever you have gains, realizing them every year rather than not realizing them right. and having those gains just grow larger and larger and larger. So in the future, you have a larger and larger tax bill. In essence, you can save close to $200,000 over the course of retirement in, in a case where you have a $2 million portfolio. Just in taxes. That's a significant amount of money. Huge amount of money. So this is one of those planning opportunities that when you add to the rest of the planning things that we can do as experienced advisors and bring to the table, really, it really all adds up to, to a pile of money that you would otherwise would not have, basically. And I'll put some of this, the details of this on our website here shortly, uh, maybe in the next week or so. Uh, but uh, in the meantime, if you'd like to get a hold of us and go over it together, we'd be happy to speak with you. Yeah. Remember to check our website at empirical.net. All right. I think that's it for the show today. Thanks for joining us. We'll talk again soon. We hope you've enjoyed Empirical Investing Radio with Ken Smith and Ethan Broga. Please join us again next Thursday afternoon at 5 p.m. Eastern Time and 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. And for more information about Empirical Investing Radio, please call 800-923-4307. We'll see you next week. Thank you.